Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I speak with my friend Scott Schwank. Scott is a highly respected teacher of breathwork and meditation. He spent numerous years living and studying in a monastery, which introduced him to the traditions of Tantra, which remain central to his teachings. Now, Tantra are often associated with uninhibited sexual activity, and while I don't doubt Scott's sexual prowess, this is a misinterpretation of the word. While the tantric practices of breathing, meditation, and yoga may enhance one's sexual performance, Tantra refer more specifically to the esoteric Indian traditions, including Buddhism and Hinduism. As Scott is highly skilled in the use of mantra, sacred utterances that are often repeated during spiritual practice. And he is perhaps best known for leading breathwork sessions, often to large groups that can elicit psychoactive states. Now, Scott and I delve into one of the world's most fascinating topics, the breath. We explore the physiological necessity of breath and its role in cellular respiration. We discuss how conscious manipulation of the breath can trigger different mental states and heal trauma. We talk about the relationship between the breath and different neurotransmitters that govern mood and memory. And we excavate the spiritual dimensions of the breath, which appear in virtually every tradition. Now you can get high on your own supply by taking Scott's commune course, Ecstatic Breathwork. It's free for five days. Just go to onecommune.com slash breathwork. Now, Scott and I really get to stretch out, and this episode is one of my favorites. So, without further delay, I present to you, Scott Schwenk. Scott Schwenk, good to be with you. You too, Jeff Krasnow. Okay. Well, I'm excited to cover a lot of different terrain with you as usual. Um, 
specifically this topic that is really hidden in plain sight, which is the breath. Um, it is something that happens 50,000 times a day for on average 25,000 in 25,000 out. And maybe we'll talk about whether or not that's a good idea. But, um, 99% of the time, this is occurring completely below the crust of consciousness. It's really a miracle on some level that it can occur completely unconsciously. And, uh, but what I really want to discuss with you is that when we turn our attention to this ubiquitous involuntary behavior and make it voluntary and make it conscious, what are the impacts psychologically, physiologically, and spiritually. Um, but before we go there, because that's a long conversation, I would love to buttress the conversation with a little bit of biographical information um, on how you came to be interested in this topic and how you can talk uh, about it with such authority. You know, I tell you, there's two things that came to mind when we were talking about talking about this before we hit record that I'd never thought about or said out loud in any interview so far. Hmm. And they are much younger than I would have thought in my life. Number one is as a little boy learning to swim at the YMCA. And so I had to learn how to breathe to swim. Like I had to actually intentionally learn how to coordinate breathing with turning my head out of the water. Right. And then the second one was learning to play and, and going on to play the saxophone, mm, yes. which I began in fourth grade. And, you know, people ask me when I began the breath or when the breath caught fire within me. And it's usually something in my twenties that I'll end up thinking about, like something intentionally that looks spiritual, so to speak, or healing oriented, but really consciously I had to learn how to breathe in those two circumstances or choke in the water or play horrible sounding notes on the saxophone <laughs> and then get called out for it. Especially yeah. those long notes. Yeah. Well, the saxophone requires a particular kind of circular breathing, right? Um, where you have to uh, sort of inhale and exhale almost concurrently to withhold long notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then of course, I mean, I think when you're a, an infant, you can actually go underwater and not actually take water into your lungs, that there's some sort of mechanism that pr protects an infant because you're in the amniotic fluid when you're in utero. Uh, but quite quickly, that reality changes um, and you have to learn how to regulate your breath. And, um, and actually, now what I'm actually very interested in is expanding my lung capacity um, and actually using my full lung capacity. Uh, and one way to do that is in the pool hmm. is actually going underwater and calmly holding your breath for as long as you can within reason um, as a, as an experience of expanding your lung capacity. And yeah. uh, I know that there was some, some very profitable treatments around that with uh, patients with, uh, with emphysema, for example, 
um, that, you know, that there were damaged parts of the lungs, but we weren't actually using much of them. Yeah. We take these like little chippy, short breaths all the time. Yep. And a lot of that can be tracked uh, back to traumatic imprinting. Hmm. You know, how one uses the breathing mechanism absolutely has an energetic and emotional component. The Some of the research I've been exposed to you about developmental trauma is the first two months in a in a person's life is the most important determinant of the rest of the life and how we're because the brain is growing so fast Hmm. during those first two months and it's taking on so many impressions from the environment so how our parents or caretakers breathed yeah interesting so this makes me think of um something that i learned from the andrew huberman podcast around uh neuroplasticity which may apply to what you're talking about obviously in a young child's brain it's exploding uh with the development of new neurons and and synapses essentially the communication between neurons and you're building a lot of neural networks you're taking in a tremendous amount of information now i would ask you to think of like have you ever witnessed like a car accident or something like really traumatic yeah i have yeah and you remember it pretty well probably right and just remembering the remembering right now i could feel the impulse to (gasps) and hold my breath so it's interesting so one of the reasons why we remember what we do is the um this kind of soup of neurotransmitters that are happening in our brain around a particular incident or event so one of the reasons why we remember emergencies or traumatic events with such acuity is that that connection gets marked with this soup or elixir of uh, of neurotransmitters, particularly like uh, epinephrine and adrenaline. And you get these real big bursts of those that put you in this fight or flight state. We can talk a little bit at some point about the autonomic nervous system. But when you experience events in combination with big, huge spikes of either epinephrine or adrenaline, it marks those neurons, it marks that connection in a very particular and powerful way. So if you're um, uh, a kid uh, and you don't have the means to regulate your emotional state, for example, um, and you are confronted with something very traumatic um your brain or your your nervous system um and your endocrine system really will uh secrete certain kinds of hormones or neuromodulators that will imprint a traumatic event and so i'm not surprised that um that your early child experiences are are so poignant hmm yeah, as you talk about all this, I, I'm remembering different moments, like being a little boy with my mom in the car in New York State winter mm-hmm. on the way to be dropped off at nursery school and our car being hit by a semi and spinning off the road. Wow. And the passenger's side window where I was sitting shattered and fell on the floor in front of me. Wow. And my mom was understandably like right into fight or flight and crying. And... It's one of the one of the many moments when I was a little boy. I can feel myself holding my breath in the memory of it, mm. and it's 
where I just, I just had to become the adult in some way. Like I was trying to control. And when I try to control, I can see that I hold my breath. Mm. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? I would have been like three and a half, maybe. Yeah. And four. how much else do you remember from the time you were four? <laughs> Not a lot else. I Not mean, a lot else. Right. Because they weren't marked with that spike of intense uh, neurotransmitter hormone. In fact, every memory I can come up with around that time has one of those spikes. Yeah. Well, and this is the, uh, the patterns or some scars that get um, wound up over time and then become, unfortunately, they punctuate your life even through adulthood. Mm. And, uh, and we need to find modalities and techniques to unwind some of these patterns. And there, there's some fascinating new kinds of treatments that I was reading about. Like, for example, I'm claustrophobic. I've talked about th this on the show before, but uh, I was older than, than the incident that, that you relay. I was in seventh grade and um, a group of boys, friends, um, this is how boys uh, display their affection for each other. They, um, they locked me in a school locker. And this, uh, this, as you can imagine, is a very narrow, cold metal encasement. Yeah. And uh, of course, it, it immediately threw me into um, amygdala hijack. And, you know, every symptom of that was on full display. I was kicking the, the, the inside of the locker and screaming and I honestly think I was so out of my mind or enraged and intense, it actually prolonged my confinement because as I started to think about it years later, they didn't want to let me out because they knew that I was going to be so out of my head. Yeah. So I could just, I started, this was actually recently, I started imagining them looking at each other like, what do we do? Wow. Um, but it's taken me years to kind of get that level of witness. But um, anyways, of course, when they did let me out, I was like a whirling dervish of snot and spit and rage. Um, but that followed me forever. It still follows me. Uh, given, even I've been coached and met with every single spiritual <laughs> leader ever, you know, and uh, well, that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> um, but, you know, I've been taught a lot of modalities and I'm still dealing with it. Um, and it, it doesn't just extend to, you know, confined spaces. It's like literally any situation from which I cannot extricate myself. And I think that's important to highlight what you just said right there about, I've been exposed to so many healing modalities around this thing and I'm still encountering it. Like mm. how many of you listening have something in your life, whether it's how you experience yourself in relationship with some important people that keeps coming up again and again and again. And then how do you talk to yourself about that? Yeah. Like I can, if I don't catch it, Jeff, I can shame myself, which is yeah. more of the same. So for anyone listening, take claustrophobia and just take the equivalent of my claustrophobia and apply it to your own life. Cause you've got some, uh, fear or phobia or hang up or samskara or trauma or traumatic event. Everybody does. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, e even when we have 
um, training and particular modalities, even when we know that we can leverage the prefrontal cortex over the limbic, over the amygdala, uh, we can't always do it because some of these patterns are so somatically intense and strong mm -hmm. that they overwhelm our ability to reason or rationalize around them. Even though I know, like, well, I don't know, I can walk out of this office anytime. You know, but right. um, so one of the really interesting things um, as I, I started to learn more about sleep and we can experience traumatic events in our sleep and have no um, sympathetic nervous system response. So we can have a nightmare and we can be wearing like an aura ring, like I'm wearing um, that measures my heart rate. Um, or you could be hooked up to like an fMRI or whatever, something more sophisticated. And we can experience these traumatic events that could either be new events or they could replay old events. And we have no uh, uh, um, sympathetic response. So our heart rate doesn't go up. Um, and our, we don't have any neurotransmitter concomitants or whatever. We don't have spikes in epinephrine and adrenaline. Hmm. And one of the reasons may be, and I don't know, but our breath rate doesn't change. Ah. And that could be a symptom or a cause or both. But it is a really, really interesting thing. Of course, your body is in a sense of, is in a state of paralysis when you're sleeping, mm -hmm. because otherwise, <laughs> You, know, you might do something really dumb. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, some people are said to go, you know, make a cup of tea, but, um, you know, you don't want to, you know, stab your partner or something like that. Um, or, you know, at least normally. But um, it is, uh, yeah, I, I find that to be really interesting. And there's something potentially to learn from, from that. Um, there's also, do you know... Um, this thing called beta blockers, which is a um, like a cardiovascular pharmaceutical mm -hmm. that um, lowers heart keeps uh, lowers heart rate. And sometimes people that have stage fright take them before they give a speech or they give a talk. Hmm. So, um, and it it has a kind of parasympathetic response. So it keeps heart rate down, keeps respiratory rate down. Um, keeps you in sort of rest and digest and, you know, doesn't dilate your pupils and anyways, all, all of the normal things. And, uh, there's one particular beta blocker called, I'll mispronounce it. So it doesn't matter. I think it's propaninol. Um, but, and I, sorry, I'm kind of going off a little bit on this, but, um, there was a study where they took people with severe trauma and they had a control group and then they had a, a, a treated group and they brought them into a room. So they did it with childhood trauma. They also did it with arachnophobia. So with spiders. Ooh. And uh, I'll just describe the spider one because it's a little easier to describe. So they brought the people in and half of the group, they, uh, the control group, they just brought them in and then the treated group, they issued or they administered a dose of beta blockers. And then they made, um, everyone in the study handle a tarantula. 
mm. basically confront up close their biggest trauma. And the people that were untreated, that hadn't been administered the beta blocker, had their typical amygdala-oriented response. They went into fight or flight. They had to leave. They couldn't continue with the study, et cetera. Um, and the people that were treated and administered the beta blocker, they were able not only to handle the tarantula and look at it and bring it up close, but subsequently they had no more trauma with spiders. Wow. Because they unmarked that, um, that, uh, synaptic connection that associated spiders with danger and trauma because they had a interaction with it that had no neurotransmitter spike that had completely calm breath rate that completely calm cardiovascular rate hmm. so you know i think you know you've obviously worked with so many different people with the breath can you unwind long-held trauma and fears and phobias by a certain amount of exposure to that trauma and fear, but with conscious breath? Can you? Yes. Does everyone? No. And that, I think, is part of the unique way each of us are wound around the imprintings. And I have seen people, what I'm bringing to mind right now is people on, on the, the, the massage table doing breath work who have a history of panic. Hmm. And when they begin, that's usually people who've done the breath work with me for the first time, or this type of breath work for the first time, usually have said, Oh, I think I might be going into a panic attack and with familiarity and watching their body, I see that they're not having a panic attack, actually. Mm -hmm. Their brain is telling them something is happening in my body in terms of sensations that reminds me of that. And if they're willing, and I'm, I'm happy to have them back off the breath, even take the eye pillow off, they can look around. Like There's choice, which I find is really important in the healing process, is, to, is for the person to have choice. Mm. Because yeah. in the moment when the thing originally happened, there was not a feeling of choice. Whether there was or there wasn't, it didn't feel like it. You in that locker didn't feel like you had any choice yeah. or option. Yeah. In fact, there's something about that just as an aside that reminds me of St. John of the Cross who was locked into an outhouse at a neighboring monastery because they were upset with him, jealous of him. And he's bought, brought out only to be beaten or fed. And that's where he, he a guard smuggled him ostensibly cloth toilet paper where he wrote the poem dark night of the soul about the shifts he went through in meeting himself in this confined space and having to grow beyond the familiar mm. and, yeah. and he did so the moving through so somebody's on the table they're doing breath work they're starting to have this feeling of maybe i'm panicking and i say actually what appears to be happening is there's a lot of energy starting to move through your body and it seems that you're not yet in a place of comfort having a lot of energy present and your your mind is telling you something's wrong. Hmm. 
So you could be in an environment where somebody is exuding a tremendous amount of energy, the mirror neurons in your body pick up on that. And then if I haven't rewired that mechanism in myself about panic, I may start to get anxious. Yes. And we can breathe through that. Yeah. So what this is bringing up for me is that, like, for example, that feeling right before you go on stage to give a speech or to teach, and if you have some anxiety around doing that. So if you really witness the nature of the sensation, Mm. what you're feeling in that 10 minutes before backstage or whatever, the nature of that feeling could go either direction. Mm-hmm. It's the, the the difference between excitement and exuberance and anxiety is almost just the valence that we assign the feeling because the actual feeling itself is very similar. Yep. It's kind of this jittery stomach and you're, you know, you're you're a little on edge, you're alert. You're probably experiencing some degree, well, you're certainly experiencing cortisol and epinephrine and um, that state, but whether or not you're excited or you sense you're going into a panic attack is almost just in in the valence. Yeah. Yeah. Years ago, when I was in my early 20s living in in the monastery, in the ashram, the guru had a number of us young people take a course, a training with this actress, Isabel Anderson, British actress, lovely voice um, and lovely actress. And one of the things she said that stuck with me more than anything, I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember this. She said, the moment before you stand up to give your talk in front of all these people, most people are going to feel like a rush of energy. And most people without training or awareness think, oh, I'm nervous. And they wait until it passes to stand up. And she said, I'm going to tell you something different. That's the Shakti. That is the life force. That is the energy coming in to give your talk. Hmm, And if you understand it that way, you want to stand up and use that energy and deliver it. The second thing she said was said to somebody else in the ashram who was about to give a talk to probably thousands of people worldwide via satellite. And she'd given lots of talks, but not to that many people, not over satellite under that kind of pressure. And what was said to her is your only job is to breathe and love the people you're speaking to. Hmm. It was said a little differently. Your only job is to breathe and love God's people, which was endearing to her, a way to hear it for her. But that harkens back to this other thing, this piece of core wisdom that's really pithy and simple. I think it's from the Upanishads. When the sense of others arises in us, the sense of there are others that I'm separate from, fear also arises. Hmm, yeah. So the teaching is be the seer, not the seen. Be the seer, not the seen. When I think I'm the one being looked at, all my prior stuff, all my you know, quirks are going to come up like, oh, do I look right? Am I too large, too small, too loud, too big? And I'm overly thinking. But if I'm thinking from a place, if I'm acting from a place of how can I serve authentically, it takes that, it takes that pressure off. It, 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 it activates a different part of the physiology. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, so let me frame that this way where imagine you are the voyeur in a park and you are um, witnessing like a young mother 
taking care of her child, you know, and you're like really enchanted and mesmerized by the situation and you're almost just fixated and staring at her. Mm. Um, and what that actually feels like. And then think of the difference, the shift when she looks up and notices you for the first time staring at her mm. and how that then makes you feel the, 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 the change in frequency and vibration there. Wow. So it is, um, I think about this with movies all the time or sometimes with creative works, like a book that I'm sucked into, but it's easier somehow visually when you're in a movie theater and there's a big screen and you almost, you get this free pass because you can be completely mesmerized by the emotional scene that is, uh, you know, playing out on this massive screen and you become completely bought into it with no attachment. Like you, you don't, no one's looking at you. Right. And, um, and I think it's why we love, we get so carried away by creative works because we eschew the ego for a moment. There's no fear of judgment. You know, you're not going to fail or be judged in a movie theater unless I suppose you're claustrophobic like me and you puke <laughs> next year or something like that. Um, but you know, you do get this, this free pass and, um, and in a way it is the free pass that we're after because we can actually be the giver, the seer, the lover. You know, we don't always have to live in that place that everything is turned around and we are judged through the eyes of other people. I mean, that that is often how, how what the ego is—the symbol that we have that we give to ourselves. Well, this is the this is the endemic um, grain of sand in the oyster <laughs> that that can lead to spiritual practice, or on the other end, fully like nervous breakdown. Is this sense of a historic narrative self, right? That we are comparing everything to this sense of a historic narrative self. There's a narrative, there's a story running in my head about my me, right? All day long. This is not news to you and I, but like as a listener, like you, you have a sense of your me. Like I like these things. I don't like those things. I like these kind of people, not those kind of people. And this thing upset me last week and I can't wait for this in a couple of weeks. And that voice is coming from a constructed idea of self that is not whole. It's very partial, very limited, very skewed. And that is what gets triggered when we feel like something's not right about us. Right. And then the breath contracts and then we operate from a contracted state and perpetuate like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The narratives tell self's story. There's something wrong with me. And I don't like it. And depending on what kind of an work you've done, I'm always going to feel this way. Hmm. If you refine your capacity to, to self-recognize, I think you will, one will notice quickly is that when one is in that state, uh, the Maya or the, the connection to the symbol that we give ourselves, this ego, uh, 
we're almost always experiencing a constriction of breath yeah. or, or holding our breath. And when one is very present to the moment, um, like in a conversation like this, our breath is slow and even and, um, and, uh, and, and bound towards coherence. And we're unwittingly co-regulating. Right. Like there's a syncing up. If we had like the equipment to measure, we would probably see that there are places where our brain waves are syncing up and the rhythm and depth of our breath is actually syncing up. Yeah. And there's also like a sociogenomics argument there, which to be candid, I don't know a lot about, but like if you believe in the emerging science of epigenetics that essentially like our genes are expressed in a particular way uh, in response to behavior and environment, that our genetic expression is in a dance with each other. Yeah. So it's, it's actually quite beautiful and of course underscores the need uh, for connection. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit more about the breath. So, and I wanna also gird um, the breath in a little bit of sort of anatomical or biochemical science, but I guess I'll just ask you first, like why do we even need to breathe? Well, without breath, the body is a corpse. Start there. And you know, while there are so many different um, theories or I will call them arguments for when life begins in a body, one of the things I was taught many years ago that actually resonates as true, I'm not going to say that it's the truth because I might learn something else, uh, is that we enter the body on the first inhalation, hmm. fully enter the body, whatever we are, and we leave on the last exhalation. Hmm. I watched this in hospice with my mom. And so why breathe? Well, it determines our state. You know, how I've been saying often, how you're breathing is how you're living. How I'm breathing is how I'm living. And it, every emotion seems to have a correlate breathing pattern that's observable. And sometimes people hear that and go, oh, well, what are they? Like, <laughs> no, that's not where to go. Like where you want to go is freeing up the breath from whatever constriction is there. The longer and slower I make my exhales, the more grounded I feel, the softer my body is, the more I enter, rest, digest, and reflect. Mm -hmm. And the more the mind stream slows down, that narrative voice of my sense of self, my false sense of self slows down enough for me to notice, oh, wow, there's a gap between any two of my thoughts. In fact, wow, I almost can sense thinking like, a, like an object that I can see, and there's this infinite vastness all around it. And I've been focused on this one little thing. It's like um, years ago, I heard an example given by the the writer teacher, David Hawkins. I think David Hawkins, no, the power versus force guy. I don't remember his exact name, David R. Hawkins, I think it is. Hmm. And he, he said, you know, most people live like this, like you're in a giant stadium, football stadium, and there's nobody there. And in one corner of the statement stadium, there's a little transistor radio blasting an AM radio station and not even well. And he goes, this is it. Like, but most of us are so fixated on this one little corner of the stadium with this bad sounding transistor radio. Most of you probably don't even know what a transistor radio is anymore. Little terrible thing from like the seventies or earlier. 
And there's all this space and silence all around it. Creative space, creative silence. Mm. So breath can open us back up to possibility, back up to creative silence. And you don't have to become a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Tantrika. Those are all just ideas that that somebody had a powerful experience at some point and wanted to share freedom with other people the way they thought they got it. Right. But if we come back to physiology, just simple physiology, how I'm breathing is how I'm experiencing my moments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've always felt that, you know, Jesus walked out to the desert after he was baptized and had some kind of epiphanous experience, you know, not unlike the Buddha. Or, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, he came back and because the only context that he had for such a transcendental experience was the Hebrew tradition, then it was only natural for him to utter that I am one with God. Mm-hmm. Now, whether he actually said, I am the son of God, is up for some debate. He certainly didn't seem to deny it in any of the Gospels. But I've always, you know, the words that I've seen used, like esos, and um, there, there's always more of an indication of like, I am at one with God, or I am unified with God. Um, and of course, dependent on what cultural context you find yourself, you will assign whatever epiphanous experience that you have, which will certainly be associated with breath. A um, Muslim yeah. saint, uh, I think it was Musafir maybe, it said, Anal Haq, same yeah. thing. Like, I, I, am, I am one with Allah. Right. And it, got him, it got him killed, I believe. Or well, certainly if you were in the American South, even right now, and you had, uh, you went to church on Sunday and you left and you walked out into nature and you had a transcendental experience and you came back to church and you said, I've seen it. I'm the son of God. Right. You would be, um, you'd be thrown out and just the way Jesus was. I mean, this is what you would be considered, uh, uh, blasphemous. Um, because of course in, well, in that, that particular Abrahamic tradition, there can be only one son of God. And this is what I happen to like about uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and some of the Eastern philosophies, which imagined, well, there should be billions of Buddhas. This opportunity is open to everyone. Well, in the Vedic yeah. utterances, you know, the Mahavakyas, the great sayings, you know, the first one is Aham Brahmasmi, I am that. I am mm. Brahman. I am, I am one with or I am that creative source. We cannot be separate because if nothing existed prior to the creative source, then how can anything exist which is not made of the hem of that garment? And But the second Mahavakya, Tattvamasi, so are you. Ahambramasmi, mm. I am that. And Tattvamasi, so are you. You know, people might say I'm taking things out of context, but at the Pentecost, when Jesus is talking about the gifts of the Spirit and says, and these things and more you shall do. Well, if these right. things and more you shall do, then what state must you be in of awareness that that is even possible? Some degree or depth of recognized oneness with the source of that energy flow. Yes. 
And breath is endemic. Breath, breath is key. Breath is happening. Yeah, of course. In Genesis, I believe that the beginning of life is the point at which God picks up the kind Clay. of ceramic object of Adam and and breathes life through his nostril. The ruach, the breath yeah. of life. And it is through the nostril, which is a whole other topic that we can go into about breath and about breathing and nostril breathing versus versus mouth, mouth breathing, breathing, which is a, a, a topic that, that James Nestor covers at great depth uh, in his book. I want to just veer off for a second and talk a little bit about some of the physiological needs of breath. Um, and, you know, this will be a little detour and sort of repetitive for a lot of people. Um, but I do think that not everyone who is not taking ninth or 10th grade biology, like my kids, actually really remember why we need to breathe. So um, I'll just spend a minute reminding people how this all happened. Um, and I'll, I'll start two billion years ago when, you know, life was really just microbial. So we had these bacteria and, and bacteria and archaea sort of fused. Um, and of course, this star that's 93 million miles away in its core is having a fusion experience where two uh, hydrogen nuclei are fusing to produce a helium atom and that fusion process uh, emits light energy and that comes into our atmosphere in the form of electromagnetic radiation and visible light that hits a chloroplast on an algae or on a tree or on a leaf of a plant and what is catalyzed is this process called photosynthesis which i won't obviously go into right here but the byproduct of that um, with algae or photo phytoplankton zooplankton etc is oxygen and as the world became more aerobic, more oxygenated, that gave um, the opportunity for plant life to efflorescence, and more and more plant life and basically fossilized sunlight in the form of, you know, glucose and fats and carbohydrates and proteins in these plants gave rise to animal life, mammals, mm -hmm. amphibians, um, reptiles, etc. And uh, of course we use, you know, that plant life for our glucose energy, but of course the world became a lot more oxygenated. And we breathe in that oxygen as non-photosynthetic beings. And, uh, and that oxygen obviously travels hopefully through our nose. We can talk about that um, in a minute. And down through our trachea, and there's this crossroads right somewhere up here. Um, with a guy playing the blues guitar and you can go one way or the other way, not really, but, uh, and there's bronchial tubes and then, uh, there's these alveoli, uh, which are basically like the bridge between the lungs and the bloodstream. So air comes in and the hemoglobin, which is protein in our blood grabs a hold of the oxygen and that is pushed through the arteries by the heart. Uh, to all of the cells in our body, um, which then use that oxygen as part of cellular respiration, which is essentially the human process for creating energy or adenosine triphosphate, which is the core energy unit. Um, 
and the byproduct of that process, which is a threefold process, which we don't have to go into, but two of those parts are aerobic. Um, but the byproduct of this energy creation is carbon dioxide. So basically this hemoglobin, our red blood cells, are swap out oxygen for carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide comes back up through our veins and into our lungs and mm. expelled into the world. And this is what is also known as the carbon cycle because it is this beautiful coherence of nature that is balancing photosynthetic and non-photosynthetic cells where it's like, hey, peanut butter and chocolate kind of situation. You make glucose and oxygen. I take that in for energy. I make carbon dioxide and water. That's what you need. And uh, when unimpeded, uh, nature finds that beautiful balance. But at the core of it is that our bodies need oxygen for energy. I also want to highlight something really powerful for me in listening to this whole story, which is there's an old saying that I picked up years ago, everything is available to the level of community. Hmm. Your retelling of the existence, the emergence of, and the perpetuation or maintenance of life cycles, it's all a community. That's it's right. all exchange within a community. This, and you know, there's this term respiratory process that usually refers to breathing, but it also refers to exchange of energy. Mm. This, so, you know, you've talked robustly, especially in the early days of the pandemic about the I kind of robust individualism versus a community orientation or a relational orientation and to kind of weave together everything we've been touching on, like the current science around healing trauma is one needs to heal it in community. Yeah. That that's a key piece, a core piece. The most important piece is to have a safe community, the sense of safe community with other people and that recreation of a new imprint in the in the brain and in the nervous system to come back into flow. Because prior to language, we're just naturally in flow with the 10,000 things because thought doesn't get in the way. This narrative self like, uh-oh, what should I do? Well, maybe I'm gonna go over here and not there, but like everything else in nature appears to be organized within this whole system, this community of nature until words pull us out of that project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I've become more aware of Taoism, for example, which doesn't see the world as created by a cosmic carpenter, mm. it sees the world as simply emerging and evolving within community. That all there really is, is energy, and information mm. that's as i've took me 51 years to reduce my self identity <laughs> to energy and information and at the core of that energy and information is a desire to connect mm. and this is how life progresses to connect or to experience the intrinsic connection consciously because if think, we're already connected, then that begs the question of like the desire to connect if we're already actually connected, like all particles are connected. Right. I, I do think that there is an inexorable force that is pushing us towards 
this connection because this you know is how life progresses i mean even from a genetic perspective you know you have uh you, you have a confluence or myriad of genes and then through um environmental pressure nature selects and then we push forward so we're constantly adapting around the information that you're bringing and i'm bringing and every living thing is is bringing and um so you know when i think of like um the exhale and the inhale mm -hmm. and you um you kind of beautifully framed uh the life of your mom you know at least the corporeal earthly life of your mom um within those bookends um it, it feels as if nature is constantly a process of bringing together seeming opposites so we have exhale and inhale we have life we have death we have right we have wrong we have good we have evil we have up we have down we have you know we have all of the coincidence of opposites that emerge within the scope of the universe and that there seems to be this inexorable force this might be the infinite mind of god this might be spirit um, this might be brahman i don't know what this might be but there is this logos i will just call it a foundational intelligence that wants to create coherence out of these opposites i'm going to say the coherence is already and always here mm -hmm. and that where we can get tripped up in language is we're looking simultaneously at some unifying force while trying to look at the appearance of temporary forms you know you have your body i have my body when we finish this i go back to my house and my office when it's time for me to go to sleep i don't crawl into your bed with you and skylar uh, your wife not every night not every night and so at the level of form like there's certain distinctions we make you know these are my hands not your hands simultaneously and i wouldn't even want to call it a unifying force because that implies that something wasn't already united the fundamental creative something runs through everything can never be destroyed and only moves through forms you know like you've gardened or have gardens for years and like where does the energy that was in the plant go into another form when the leaves fall or the fruit has been harvested or when the body falls off the energy that was in it doesn't doesn't disappear it takes on new forms so I, why is this important because there's a way to heal more quickly these trauma imprints these challenging moments by even just starting with thought just the possibility that there's something holding everything you know in the tradition that i was raised in a form of tantra uh, called the recognition school meaning recognizing what's already so not creating something and there's a body of 20 pithy sayings Pratyabhignirodaya, the heart of the doctrine of recognizing our true our true awareness. One consciousness is projecting like a movie onto its own self. It is the screen that the movie is projected onto. It's the story, it's the camera, it's the actors, it's the uh, projector, it's all of it. It's all happening within itself. And we have to really 
relax into some degree of a meditative state for this to even make sense. Mm-hmm. We can't look at it from the idea that all these separate objects and forms, there's got to be a just like a, like a long, slow exhale and a softening of the body to begin to just consider the possibility that the, that the energy that's beating my heart is listening through your ears and blowing through the trees outside. Like that that's actually so. And, that, and if you can really begin to dip into this with your imagination, you feel a change in, I feel a change in my physiology. Like I feel more relaxed. I feel more spacious. I feel some sort of um, nourishment, yeah? And from there, if I can stay in that position that's slightly witnessing my body and hold the awareness of my body as it is, trauma or no trauma, hungry, not hungry, whatever's going on, hold it from that place of wholeness, some degree of it, and then feel whatever's going on, tension somewhere, like holding a sick infant, really. The mother doesn't need to become sick to help the infant or the father. The mother or the father holds the infant in a loving spaciousness, not too tight, not too loose. So this loving spaciousness is some degree of like, all right, there's a something that's holding everything and it's benevolent and it's powerful and it's the source of all power. And as I hold that in that way, I can then my interventions, whether it's breath work or other somatic work or movement, begin to have more coherence and power. Otherwise, a lot of the work that people try to do and think maybe isn't working, it's just not working because of the way we're entering it. If I'm entering it from separation, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. There's a hole, it's going down. And I'm just rearranging the deck chairs, trying to make it look pretty, but it's going down. Yeah, I I think the the most difficult piece of crossing this um this river if you will and um i think of it as a river there's a very siddhartha of you <laughs> yeah right there was mahayana this idea of a conveyance of the great conveyance of yana being almost a raft and this is the the trip from one bank of of, of sleep to the other bank of wakefulness um but um, I think the, that one of the greatest difficulties in making that journey is that as a product of our own direct experience, there's so much feels like there is an I. Mm-hmm. There's so much feels like there is an experience that it is like to be me that is subjective and completely separate. Yeah. And it is very, very hard to unpack that feeling and um and and of course this is why you know we meditate um because meditating provides an opportunity to really experience a very to have a very different experience of what it's like to be you and matching and modeling is really important to bring into this moment of the conversation because everything we learn as 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 animal bodies we learn through modeling and mirroring. Um, and what do, why do I want to bring this up is so important. We could sit and meditate until the cows come home, but maybe not much is going to happen. Or we could sit next to somebody who's already having these fundamental insights living in their nervous system. And whether they say anything or not, 
meditating next to them because of the mirror neurons in my body, I will pick up that mm -hmm. coherency much more quickly. And this is why this, the, when it works well, the system of teacher-student works really well. If the teacher is actually more cooked than the student, it can expedite the process like leapfrog. Yeah, yeah. Same with learning well, tennis. Absolutely. I mean, I don't get any better playing with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Skylar. Um, she does. But uh, so, you know, I've really thought a lot about this because it is very hard for me over the years to really, um, you know, realize the non-self, okay? So to move from avidya to vidya in Buddhism anyways, um, because there is such a palpable experience of what it's like to be me. So one of the ways I've tried to start to understand this is like, okay, let's ground this conversation in the physiological for a moment. Yeah. Okay. So I wake up every day and I sense that there is a Jeff. And the reason why I sense that is for reasons you alluded to earlier in our conversation, that there are stories that I tell myself about myself that I've told myself every day that gird this certain sense of identity. And that there's a physical and psychological continuity to my life, seemingly moment to moment. Like five minutes ago when we were sitting here is so much like this five minutes or this moment right now that there seems to be a, some sort of continuity there that girds this sense of identity that I'm a Jeff and there is a stable, reliable Jeff. <laughs> um, and I am reliable just in the world of the 10,000 things. But as it pertains to really this broader spiritual conversation, I don't think I am. And from a physiological standpoint, I am predominantly bugs, okay? There are 70 trillion cells in my body, 39 trillion are bacteria and archaea and fungi living in my gut, living on my skin, living in my nostrils and my mouth, and actually in an aura around me. In fact, my self, if I really just wanted to describe a self, doesn't even really end at my epidermis. It kind of like floats out around me, as does my energetic field. So then I'm like, well, where do I start and end? Mm -hmm. And then I can go on. It's like I am this endless soup of neurotransmitters of cortisol and epinephrine and adrenaline and acetylcholine and serotonin and dopamine and they're swishing around and sometimes there's more of one and sometimes there's more of another and I'm, sometimes I'm in the sympathetic state and sometimes I'm in the parasympathetic state and sometimes I have more adenosine in my system which is making me more tired. There is nothing stable about what it's like to be me or and, what it's like to be anyone. And <laughs> the question that comes up as we, if we can, can be on the ride that Jeff's talking through like, like you're going on the ride with Jeff, if you're in a relaxed way having this journey of words and discovery, the question comes up, am I all those things or am I just adjacent to them? What am I? Like there is some I, what am I? Yeah, or am I the precondition for all of those things to arise and subside? So am I the awareness in which all, everything I just said are phenomena arising and subsiding moment to moment. And the great realizers of all the different traditions seem to say, yes, I am the precursor. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. Aham Brahmasmi, Tatvamasi, Ein Sof, Analhak. All these different ways of getting at this fundamental insight that I and the creative source of existence are not two events. Hmm. Yeah, I interviewed a woman named Anita Morjani. Mm. Who, um, Dying to be me. Yeah, it's the best book, title of a book ever, given <laughs> what happened to her. Um, so she had a near-death experience. She was riddled with cancer, died, flatlined, left her body, um, and had an experience outside of her body, and then decided for myriad reasons to come back. And so she is a window into the other side. And she has, well, she wrote a book about it, and she can describe it in, in great eloquence and, and beauty. But one image stuck with me. She, and because it's in a club, she frames it in a club, which is uh, where I misspent most of my youth. She says that if you've ever been in a club and experienced a disco ball, and the disco ball is spinning, and it is reflecting and refracting tens of thousands of points of light all through the club. Well, you can think of yourself as one of those points of light that you are, that there is an experience that that one point of light is having, but it is, but the source of it is one singular, um, infinite source of light. Mm. And of course, for her, who is Hindu, that is the Brahman. Mm. Um, that there is a point, for her at least, outside of you know physical life, where she felt this, um, I suppose the best word is samadhi, and the best English translation for that would be some sensation of integrated consciousness that there was no delineation of the experience of what it was like to be her and experience at large. And for you listening, samadhi is a Sanskrit word. Sama is sameness. So it's this immersion, this conscious immersion in the self, capital S self, the great self, the source, conscious immersion. And there's flavors of it. We don't need to break that down right now. No, but one thing about samadhi, which I... If there is a terminus to anything that we're doing here, that's what it might be. Mm. And I, I, it is the eight, number eight in the Eightfold Path of uh, Eightfold Noble Path of Buddhism. And it is also the eighth lamb of yoga in the Hindu tradition. So, in the right, in Patanjali Sutra. So, it, so there is some consilience there that seems to point to that we're, we're, we're moving somewhere. Mm. And um, back to where we started. That's true, ocean <laughs> mind. Well, this is exactly it, where, you know, this notion of ocean mind, which is often attributed to babies in utero, mm. so who have no sense that there is any delineation between the experience of what it's like to be them and the experience of everything around them. So yeah. They are absolutely one with their mother. There is, they have not labeled anything external to them. It's just not yet conscious. It's, it's, it's it's like accidental almost mm -hmm. until there's like the recognition of suffering, the recognition that suffering is coming from a separate sense of self. And then what the, with in Tantrayana, the vehicle of Tantra in Buddhist practice 
gets into or Dzogchen, mother consciousness, which is the, the ocean, the, the full complete ocean and child consciousness, the barrier breaks. Yeah. And then child consciousness recognize, recognizes its already oneness with mother consciousness. Yes. Well, this is, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the, I mean, for those, uh, the Rishis who had the great opportunity to spend most of their lives actually uh, disentangling illusion. And the Rishis are but, the seers. Yeah. Of but, truth. But even for those of us who are stumbling and bumbling our way yeah. uh, in the Western world to experience some form of U-turn yeah. in their life from this process of individuation. So I'm born, I come out of the womb, I, my eyes begin to focus, I start to become verbal, and I start to label everything outside of me in an external world that is separate from me. And stop experiencing it directly. You know, I think it was Krishnamurti, uh, Judah Krishnamurti, said that as soon as we tell a child that's a tree, it stops seeing the tree, it just sees its concept tree. Right. It stops experiencing that's the tree directly. Exactly. So are, that's a, a whole field of study called semiotics, which is mm -hmm. like the study of signs. So even words. I mean, this is why I, even as much as I love doing this, and, mm -hmm. why, and I think it's absolutely worthwhile, we are using symbols to try to represent sensations. That's the best word I can think of right. um, for, you know, many of these concepts. Of course, you know, it's like the first verse of the Tao is the Tao that can be named, it's not the Tao. Eternal Tao, yeah. So, you know, we, <laughs> even in spiritual traditions, we go around saying, that's God, you know, and then we make it a hymn, mm -hmm. and we give it a beard, yeah, and we put it in a robe, and then we're like, wait, did we make him in our image, or did he make <laughs> Exactly right. So the, the moment that we call something a God, it can't be the God. Well, let's just touch on this for a second. So another great text of the tantric tradition I come from, the Shiva Sutras. Mm -hmm. Chittam Mantra. Mind is mantra. Now, what mantras? So mantra is, is a word or a vehicle for energy. It's an energy package. And ordinary language is just as much mantra as something profound like aham brahmasmi, Mm -hmm. What makes the difference about these words is what's infused inside of them. You know, we have, you can't see it because you're listening to us, but we have these two mugs of mint tea and a mug with nothing in it. What's the point? So 25 different people could say the word love. And one out of them may be standing on the stage actually steeped in it. And when they say love, we feel something. But everyone else said the same word in English, love. And this one person says love. And we feel something in our physiology. We feel a shift in our breath. So words can be a vehicle for our wakefulness and to deliver that, or a vehicle for a further separation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, even Om, in um in sanskrit you know is uh, became amen 
mm-hmm. you know, in in Western tradition and Christianity and in Greek antiquity. And so th- there are words that hold the vibration of the infinite, but but it's also how the word, the intention, the sankalpa with which the word is uttered. That's right. What is one united with or yoked with? Yoga is united or yoked with when uttering. You know, to say Om Namah Shivaya. Om is the primordial sound that encapsulates all of Sanskrit. It is the alpha and the omega of sound. And these words can just be uttered. You can find them on t-shirts and bumper stickers, unfortunately, (laughs) and not have an experience. But from one who understands Om Namah Shivaya, I am one with, I bow to the eternal. That is what I am made of. If that experience is alive as I'm repeating it, if I have the feeling that I'm not separate from the goal of these energy packages, these sounds literally are energy packages mm-hmm. that shape and direct life. Yes. And if I can begin to have that experience rather than my mantra practice is like a, a request to some cosmic Santa Claus that maybe will or maybe won't get delivered, but suspend the disbelief. Just try like, what if you repeated right now as you're listening, I am love, but suspend the disbelief that there's anything about you that's not the supreme love and just begin to slowly repeat, I am love and begin to have the sense that the words are carrying the actual energy package of that experience already now. And the more we begin to have the real experience of these truths, we're exchanging differently with all of life because we're coming to life with inner fullness as opposed to this deficient sense of emptiness and then grasping at words and people and circumstances and whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, It makes me think of the sun that never asks anything from anyone. And shines on criminals and saints equally. That's right. What was the? I think it was Hafiz who said, uh, even after all this time, um, what is it? That's a great thing about the sun. Oh, you've never asked me for anything. I think that's what it is. But I, I think of uh, embodying a state of giving, um, like one might be like the sun, where it is your state uh, where love becomes really more of a state of being than an emotion that might arise in some transitory fashion moment to moment. And it's, I would encourage the exploration that love is not an emotion or even just a state of being. It's a force in the same way that beautiness is an actual force. Love is a force that's all around that we give the convenient name or conveyance name of L-O-V-E. Mm-hmm. But it's so much more than the word. Back to the tree. Do I see the tree or just the idea of the word tree? Do I see, can I open, to, can I be in discovery of the force of love? Like just for the rest of the day, like, well, if love is in every particle, if it is the coherency in the particle, and coherency feels really lovely and expansive and uplifting the way I say love does. Let me, let me immerse in that. Let me, mm. let me taste it more deeply for myself. 
Yeah. You know, Om, many of the, the um, prayers, uh, Om Namah Shivaya, or there's a Buddhist, Buddhist prayer, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, mm -hmm. or even the utterance of Om. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> these are ancient. Um, and they were predictive of something interesting. They're all about five to six seconds long when said uh, in their right pacing. Mm. And that is the exact optimal length of a breath. Uh, through the nose. Through the nose. James I mean, Nestor. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of good reasons to, to breathe through the nose. And I'll, you know, just to put that in brackets for a minute, um, your nose, when you nostril breathe, you are, um, there's a temperature control uh, factor there. Your lungs don't like anything to be too cold or too hot. There's also a serious filtering mechanism going on between the mucosa and the cilia hairs in your nose that are filtering out potentially pathogenic bacteria um, and redirecting it actually through your digestive tract and instead of your, your um, pulmonary systems. Um, and then also breathing through your nostrils releases nitric oxide. So nitric oxide and carbon dioxide, oddly or ironically, are vasodilators. So that opens up your capillaries and um, allows greater oxygen saturation. So if you're breathing through your nose, um, what you're allowing for is greater oxygen to be picked up in the blood and then that maximizes and optimizes energy production. So if you see athletes that are trained in breath work, like I see Novak Djokovic do this all the time, the world number one tennis player, after a vigorous long rally, he will kind of grab his shorts and take a big long breath through his nose when otherwise most athletes are just <sighs> panting through their mouth mm -hmm. and he takes a long, long, long breath through his nose and then a long, long, long exhale out of his mouth. And he's obviously doing that because he's been trained that I'm going to get less tired if I'm breathing fully through my nose. So part of that is nitric oxide. The other part of it is lung expansion. So oftentimes, as we talked about kind of in the early in the conversation, our daily life, you know, we're so distracted and we're bouncing around to 900 different notifications and pings and dings. You know, our breath rate starts to mimic that, the condition of our life, and we start to breathe irregularly and quickly, and we don't use our whole lung capacity. But when we use our whole lung capacity and we breathe through our nose, we also activate the diaphragm, this muscle down here, um, people who are seeing me. And what that does is that it, it um, mediates the thoracic pump. So if you're breathing through your diaphragm and then opening up your chest and your rib cage and filling your lungs, it creates a negative pressure on your heart which then automatically sucks in blood 
and then can distribute it out the arteries um, to all of your cells uh, for for energy production. So one of the other great benefits cardiovascularly is that by breathing deep and using all your lung capacity and breathing through your nose, you are allowing your heart to work less hard. Mm-hmm. So it has uh, so there's all of these <laughs> physiological benefits to you know breathing quote unquote correctly, but then there's also of course all of these mental states that can be um, I- induced and, and mediated and upregulated and downregulated by consciously um, uh, changing breath rates. So maybe talk a little bit about that because obviously. You know, you're teaching, um, you know, mostly what I am familiar with is that you're teaching the holotropic breath, but I know that you Similar, know. but different, similar, but different just okay. to be clear because one, because they have a trademark Okay. Um, well, then, and two, because, uh, that breath starts in it's very, uh, a very simple way with breathing only through the mouth, all the way in, all the way out to evocative music. Okay. And then they're telling the participants after a certain point, let your body do whatever it's going to do. So different breathing patterns will actually start to unfold in a holotropic breathing session. And they'll go for two or three hours like this. Hmm. In fact, some facilitators have like a, a piece of pipe that if the, as the mouth goes into tetanus, starts to contract, which it can in intense breathing like that, they'll put it in the mouth so you can keep breathing. Yeah. My work is a lot lighter than that in terms of the in terms of the touch. Twenty minutes of the active breath is enough, and it's it's all through the mouth, but it's two breaths in through the mouth, one breath out in a rhythm, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really deviate except to have maybe somebody take a full deep breath in and out through the nose at a certain point, uh, just to be with what's unfolded, to settle into it, and then like shifting gears on a on a ten speed bicycle. To, to shift into a deeper gear where I feel more of the energy. My breath is more um, effective at shaping and directing energy, which is the definition of pranayama. Pranayama is balancing, regulating, and controlling energy. It's not about the breath. The breath is a tool to balance, regulate, and control and manage energy. Right. And once we begin to get the physical kind of sense of the connection to energy and breath, which takes however long it takes, then we're available to be able to do more nuanced things with the breath, like intentionally transmit states of consciousness, intentionally work with the energy grid of any space or a garden or an animal or a person. Yeah. So having experienced the the particular kind of breath work that you teach um i mean it has certain characteristics to it the um well there's a hyperoxia uh to it which can be sort of a vasoconstrictor actually which can make you lightheaded so there is a sensation there for some people and that's why i assume that you do it lying down um but what is what is the lever, you know, that is being switched that moves someone from this kind of state of I into this greater state of connection that's happening on the other side of this practice? 
I could say a lot of things about that. And most of them are going to be things that I've read or been told that resonate. I honestly don't know for certain what the ultimate truth is about that question. Mm -hmm. I know that it happens. I know that it happens seemingly nearly 100% reliably to the willing. I could say that it's about, oh, greater connectivity in the brain. We could look at the, you know, the photographs of the fMRIs in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and what's happening into the psychedelic influence of the breath or under actual uh, ingested psychedelics. Mm -hmm. But do we know for certain? No. No. I think we're kind of poking at it. Yeah. yeah. We're doing our best to to unhook ourselves from this problematic sense of I, touch the, the mother consciousness or the great I, the I, I, as Ken Wilber calls it, and then bring that back down into the body. You know, it's not about being a disembodied saint. Yeah. We have these bodies that can experience pleasure. We have such uh, historical blockades to pleasure that have been reified in scriptures. Yeah, unless you're an Epicurean. Unless yes. you're an Epicurean, which I like to think you and I both are, <laughs> or budding Epicureans, but like to come back down into the body from wholeness and then learn how to have it set up. You know, waking up is just the beginning of the project. Hmm. It's the first insight to recognize there's something that holds all of this and it is intrinsically one with me but that's not the end of the project because that's not necessarily going to handle your trauma or your relationship issues or your neurosis until it goes deep enough. And that deepening is by bringing it back down into the body, showing up in relationships, particularly ones that can be challenging and learning how to come from what is already free and bring that through the body and through the relationship hmm. and heal those old imprints. So it's quite a project. Yeah. And the project need not be confined to oneself. I mean, this is why the bodhisattva is um, coronated almost at a level higher than the Buddha, than a Buddha itself, because a bodhisattva hangs out in the real world and helps usher people across that river. And I'm going to make a, a, a crash landing into that as an argument that the bodhisattva is a stage of growing. It could look like, oh, I'm a bodhisattva and I'm helping and I'm going to, you know, delay my ultimate merger with the con highest consciousness by serving all of you suffering souls. Actually, anybody who has taught consciousness in a serious way knows it's putting fa pushing fast forward on your, your life as a teacher and everything is magnified, including your neurosis, your relationship issues contracted states of consciousness and all of this. So I'm going to say that the path of the bodhisattva is a stage of waking back down. If it's really being done, it's a stage of waking back down. Hmm. It's in the, the ox herding pictures of Zen when the, the, I think it's the 10th picture, the person's been up in the mountain doing their practices, doing their realizations, doing their mantras and releasing all these shackles. And then to come back down into the marketplace with the wine bibbers and the merchants to see what actually holds up. Yeah. My, my, one of my key teachers, Sally Kempton, formerly known as Swami Durgananda, I met in the Siddha Yoga Ashram when I was 22. And we've been close for many, many years. She's looking after me like a second mother and a mentor and a friend. She, part of her reason for leaving her robes behind 
is that she was treated in very special ways going around in orange robes in the ashram, you know, exalted ways and, and projected onto as some kind of finished product. And she knew her inner work wasn't done. And she wanted to find out what would, what will hold up about my inner state when I have to make my own money, when I have to buy and sell things, when I have to interact. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been a debate within philosophical circles for thousands of years, this kind of bifurcation between the sort of contemplative philosopher that is living a monastic, ascetic life kind of removed from society and one that's engaged and active, like a, a Socrates versus a Plato or something. Look around, yeah. how many teachers do you know, like really powerful teachers or yoga teachers who are in happy, successful relationships? It's not a large number. No. Oh, and there's a reason for that. What's the reason? The inner work isn't done yet. Like any relationship, deep relationship I've been in is more intense than any ashram situation, any workshop, mm. any therapy session. I use all those things to help make meaning of and make peace with and heal from what's <laughs> happening in my relationships. But the relationships are like truth serum, just like the breath is. Well, if that's a litmus test, I'm like a Maharishi. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm clearly not. Um, but let me, let's talk about a few other um, kinds of breath work. So I'm, I'm familiar with the Wim Hof and the Tumo breath work. Uh, have you touched that tradition at all? I am familiar with it. I have very limited experience with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done many, many hundreds of hours of cryotherapy at this point, freezing cold yeah. and using breath or chanting to manage my ability to be in three and a half minutes at 150 below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, but beyond that, no, I have yet to experience uh, Wim's work directly with Wim or one of his teachers and sometime I will. Yeah, I mean, Wim really is more of the popularizer of a tradition that's very very old um and certainly now a lot of people associate it with him but uh yeah my experience with it which is relatively limited but still you know he did come and stay at my house for two weeks so <laughs> and, and woke up every morning with the same vim and vigor to mm. tell me the exact same thing <laughs> which was amazing just to be like, yeah, you already told me this 25 times, but he is so resolute about his mission and his work. Um, but essentially, you know, it's, it's very vigorous breathing. Wait, then, what did he tell you? If he told you 25 times, we want to know oh what, God, what's the no, thing I he said. I can't do it because if, if I did it, I would have to do it in this Dutch accent. And oh, I feel you'd kill it. Yeah. And I feel, I feel bashful about it. Oh. Um, maybe tomorrow at the uh, Christmas party. Okay. Um, but uh, really, you know, what, what he is doing is, is, and this is actually the dance that a lot of breathwork plays with, is that, you know, we have this autonomic nervous system. It's part of our overall nervous system, but the autonomic nervous system governs a lot of the things that are generally happening below the crust of consciousness. So uh, digestion, respiratory rate, heart rate, urination, other things like that. And... Um, the autonomic nervous system is generally in considered bifurcated, although some people say that there's a third part of it, but there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is famously associated with rest and digest, and the sympathetic nervous system that's generally associated with the amygdala and fight or flight and certain neurotransmitters like cortisol and epinephrine and, and, and adrenaline. 
And you're always kind of in this dance. You're never fully in one or the other per se. You're kind of um, always balancing that. And the breath is a doorway in to what is normally unconscious, but can be conscious. So you can play with the edges of your autonomic nervous system by focusing on your breath. So in particular with WIM, with that particular form of breath work, you're really moving yourself into a sympathetic state, which is associated with cortisol and epinephrine. So you're highly alert. Um, and, uh, and you're also, what has been shown is that you are producing and releasing anti-inflammatory cytokines that are um, beneficial to your immune system. And in combination with hydrotherapy, with cold water therapy or ice baths or cold showers, it seems to have very, very powerful impacts on immunity. In fact, they even did a study in France where um, they had a control group and they had the WIM group and the WIM group went off to Poland, I believe, and they went to his school there and they did the breath technique and they walked around in the ice naked. They came back to the lab and they were injected with E. coli and the control group all got sick and the group that had undergone the Wim Hof method did not show any symptoms of sickness. Mm. So this was a controlled randomized study. Um, I read in the study and it, it holds up, but hmm. you know, take, take it, take what you will from that. Um, so that, that seems to represent breath work on kind of one side of the spectrum, but then there also does seem to be other breath techniques that are actually really focused on moving you into a state of the, of the parasympathetic that are used to calm down, to find peace of mind, to lower heart rate, to lower respiratory rate. Um, like Andrew Weil, I don't know if you're familiar, like with his four, seven, eight, um, it's like four in hold for seven, eight out. Yeah. And, um, and that really tends to slow things down. You have a lot more, um, it increases carbon dioxide saturation in the blood seems like, and that seems a lot of people leverage that. Which um, seems to be correlated to psychedelic states of consciousness uh, with breath work is the increase of carbon dioxide in the body. Mm -hmm. seems to be uh, most when people are in the most transcendental states of breath work. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of uh, confusion about carbon dioxide saturation. You know, generally people think, well, I need oxygen. I'm, well, I want to give away carbon dioxide. Well, that's not really true. And they're not necessarily correlated. It's not like if you have your, if you have 60% oxygen saturation, then you have 40% carbon dioxide. That's not how it works. You want to have high 90, high nineties, oxygen saturation, 96, 97%, but you also want to have high carbon dioxide saturation and you can have both concurrently if you practice good resting breathing. And it turns out that high carbon dioxide rates in the blood actually, um, allow oxygen and hemoglobin to loosen up that bond such that oxygen can get into the cells easier. Mm -hmm. So actually having high carbon dioxide uh, concentration in your blood is actually better for getting oxygen into your cells for energy production. 
Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but um, I wonder, do, do you dabble in any of the other kind of pranayama techniques or alternate nostril breathing yeah. or anything? Yeah. In fact, um, I recently had a course on a platform called Kana, <laughs> uh, Abundant Joy, where each of the seven days we do, I call it a micro breathing practice, but not to minimize the impact. Like day one, this breath where you take the deepest breath you can through your nose. You can do this now if you're listening. It's an anti-anxiety grounding breath. Deepest breath in through your nose to the lowest part of your belly, really full breath. And then as slow as humanly possible, exhaling down the centers of the legs at the soles of the feet. Hmm. Another day we do box breathing. We do uh, Nadi Shodhana. The alternate nostril breathing is phenomenal, especially before sleep or actually recommended to do before any other types of pranayama to do alternate nostril breathing to soothe and clear some of the system out to prepare it for stronger forms of breath work. Yeah. Talk about the Nadi Shodhana. Is that Shodhana. Yeah. Shodhana. And um, what is that practice exactly? Because uh, I think people have a vague sense of it. So it's literally opening and closing one or the other nostril and inhaling and exhaling alternately. Um, it's easier to show it visually if I could, but essentially it's alternate nostril breathing during the day. One or more, not one of the, one of the other nostril is more predominantly open. Right. And it changes with the biorhythms of the day and where the sun is, whether it's high in the sky or hmm. down. And it also, there's a correlation between, these subtle channels on either side of what is called the central channel, this is Shushumna. So we don't just have a physical body, we've got an energy, multiple energy bodies. And this subtle body has this central channel through which our life, our predominant life force really actually flows and informs the physical body. And on either side of it, these, these two other channels, the Ida and the Pingala, the sun rules one and the moon rules the other. And mm. they correlate to the nostrils. And there's probably a lot of other correlations that somebody smart like you knows about or has read about. I've read about some. I I'm I feel it's a little mangy this this <laughs> science, but I've read that if you if you engage in alternate nostril breathing, if you're breathing through your right nostril, that's actually sending more oxygen to the left hemisphere of your brain and vice versa. So and again, this could be totally apocryphal, but I, I did read this. It was in Nestor's book. Um, so if your right side of your brain, for example, is more associated with creativity. So if you're looking to enhance your creativity, do you want to breathe through your left nostril? Maybe. Um, that certainly seems to be uh, what he indicates um, in, in that book. I mean, I've also read and heard that each nostril is associated with different sides of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. To be honest, that doesn't feel right to me, but again, I'm merely a podcast host. But uh, you know, I think that these are the interesting things to look into. I mean, this is, a, this is the exciting period of what it is like to be alive right now. You know, I think about epigenetics and um and neuroplasticity and the microbiome and breath work all of these things basically that seem to tell us that our destinies are not fixed <laughs> you know what i mean it appears that we can change our destiny yeah this is really what's so exciting about what it's like to be alive right now is that there are all these emerging fields of study epigenetics 
neuroplasticity, the microbiome, breath, all of these modalities and behaviors that essentially point to this notion that our destinies are not fixed, that we can tinker with our spiritual and mental and physiological states in a way that confers greater benefit. Um, I mean, the notion of neuroplasticity, that our brains can change in response to environment, Mm -hmm. that we're not, that our trauma is not fixed, that our guts are not fixed, that certain physiological conditions and autoimmune diseases and chronic diseases and levels of inflammation and all this kind of stuff are, are not fixed states that we can adopt certain kinds of diets and also eliminate other kinds of toxins such that these 39 trillion bugs in our colon mostly can be our friends mm. and the and honestly, all of these things are connected because when they're our friends and they're creating short-chain fatty acids, they are upregulating our genetic expression. Mm-hmm. So we're not fixed even by our underlying nucleotide DNA sequences. Our genes can express themselves in billions, trillions of ways. They can make the proteins that we need or not. That's right. <clears throat> and breath is this other just magical tool that allows us to touch a part of us that would otherwise just be functioning unconsciously. Well, and I think it really helps to have some sense that the breath is not like static. It, it actually is filled with a force. Hmm. We could say an electricity of sorts, but it's filled with a force that gives life back to, you know, the nostrils and God breathing into the clay nostrils of so-called Adam in our metaphor. <clears throat> it's a force. Mm-hmm. And if we start to relate to it as a living, intelligent force of wholeness, then each singular breath taken from that felt sense of this is alive has more power has more influence you know 20 people doing the same breathwork technique are going to have 20 different experiences because of the state they're in not because of the mechanics of the breathing process so for example like this this uh, simple pointing out instruction right now instead of making yourself breathe have the experience that you're receiving the breath like, just make it up that you're receiving it, like you're receiving, you know, love from the one you could love the most through all of your pores, that the breath is actually entering through all the pores, but you're receiving it, you're not doing it, you're observing, receiving it. There's a different experience there hmm. than simply mechanically trying to organize or contrive my breath, which can create tension. So really important in any technique is relaxing, the body at will and choosing a feeling to focus on without grasping at it, mm. whether that's compassion for one's own body, the way I would feel compassion for somebody I care about going through the same thing or love, if I can touch love or simply some degree of contentment, but 
that has such an effect on any of the processes I'm going to select. And then at a certain point, we see that the breath work, the activated breath work is like a form of training wheels that deliver us into a certain embodiment and understanding and capacity to manage our energy without needing such obvious exoteric techniques all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of my own Vipassana practice. Um, this is a kind of Buddhist meditation that's very breath focused. Um, and at the very, very basic level, you just become a witness to the miracle of the breath. And you just refine your sensitivity to the sensation of it. And it can be very creative, honestly. It, it shouldn't be confused with the cessation of thoughts. Now, certainly a Vipassana meditation, like many meditations, a certain goal is to relieve kind of monkey mind, the notion that thoughts are branches and you're just a monkey swinging from one to the other. But you can engage in certain kinds of very refined attention in the process of witnessing your breath. Like where do you actually feel the breath most pronounced? And just get really quiet and focused on where that is. Or sometimes I will assign the breath a color mm. and, uh, and just play with that a bit or a certain kind of signature. And, um, and it is almost just a, a trick or a technique to get yourself quiet and present um, such that you begin just to notice what would otherwise be happening so unconsciously. And in doing that, you begin to punctuate the rest of your life, the non-Vipassana part of your life, with that same kind of <clears throat> refinement and presence. Mm -hmm. It really does spill over. And uh, of course, you know, the, the goal of, of, of any meditation practice to the degree that there even is a goal um, is not to be uh, just wrapped in a blanket of serenity for 10 minutes at the beginning or the end of the day, but to bring that form of mindfulness, that non-judgmental presence uh, to your quotidian life. Well, in true mindfulness, as the great ones continue to point out, who've actually are tasting it and training consistently in it, is not being mindful of how, how many times I chew my breakfast cereal. You know, I didn't get into this to count my, my chews for the rest of my life. Or how many breaths I've taken in my sit. Those are, those are to set me up to ideally have the bandwidth to be aware 
of pure consciousness itself, the sourceful consciousness, the mother mm -hmm. consciousness, or the force of love itself, and to be mindful of that through all of my moments. This is something I've been contemplating <clears throat> so deeply lately in my own life is where, where am I oriented in the moment? any moment, ordinary, so-called ordinary moments. You know, my practices are setting me up to have more awareness. What I do with that during the rest of my day determines the future of my destiny, really. So where am I coming from in my relating? Like, let's say in a romantic or the hoped for romantic relationship, am I coming from trying to get love and validation? That will, that will continue to play out that I'm not getting it. Mm-hmm. Or I'll have spikes of feeling like I'm approved of and, and getting it and then drops. Can I touch the place of the whole? Can I touch the place and be mindful of the source of love as a, as a presence while I'm interacting with a potential date, while I'm just so-called by myself, or while I'm doing anything, what am I mindful of? There's this, um, some of us remember uh, banks or, or buildings that had two sets of doors, security doors. And so you open the first door from the out of doors to go inside to this little chamber. And until the first door closes, the second door, the inner door doesn't open. It's locked. Yeah. So until the outer door is closed, the inner door won't open. So as long as I'm focusing on what I don't have, what's missing that I'm trying to get from some other person, place, or circumstance, I'm actually delaying having what I say I want to have. It's already all available at the level of feeling. Everything we're mm. doing is because we want to feel a certain way. Mm. And the feeling is available by being mindful of sourceful consciousness, the source of consciousness in some way. So breath, meditation, selfless service, um, different Ayurvedic or, or cleansing practices are meant to, to open our bandwidth to recognize this sourceful consciousness rather than just have it be some hypothetical idea and then to be mindful of it, to be uh, informed ever more fully by it. So we're not trying to get anything from the world. We're just playing in it to be mm. fully in the world without being of it. Yeah, that, that vestibule of purgatory is interesting. <laughs> Um, I hadn't thought of it that way that, that you really need to eschew this tendency to thrust the requirements of the ego onto someone else or other things or external agents before the rewards of the inner journey may show fruit. Yeah. Um, which is a very interesting way of looking at it. But of course, as you know, that as soon as those doors close, that, that initial set, the other ones open. It's not like you're in this um, purgatory for, for long, but it just requires a certain will of attention. And also challenging for smart people is to not intellectualize all this. Because you could be in the inner vestibule, the inner door could open, but... Ordinary mind may still be looking to describe, grasp, control, understand, because it made up, oh, if I can understand, then I'll never be in pain again the way I was at three, five, and 13. Mm -hmm. Get lost yeah. again in the net of words. So always the mindfulness, am I directly experiencing 
or am I several steps removed into language? Yeah, that's a tough one because I have a penchant for intellectualism um, and and constant sort of cognitive which is another matrix play and it is uh of course i do think that there is this really interesting dance between mechanism and and modality um and i, I guess mechanism understanding the functionality of, of something and how it might work mm -hmm. and then leveraging a tool or modality to actually instantiate or reify the real benefits of it. And this one, this one is about intellectuality and cognitive processes. And the complement to that is really direct experience. And I'm not sure if one can exist without the other. It probably, well, certainly they both can exist without each other. Um, I mean, Zogen is, is almost like a, uh, it's like a bullet train, you know, in a way to, but there has to be readiness or the bullet train doesn't work. That's the thing. Hmm. The master teacher knows or is, is intuitively given the knowing in the moment. If the student is ready for the pointing out instruction, the pointing out instruction of the nature of reality, the fundamental insight mind, its nature is unconstructed. Nobody made it. It's luminous, it's empty, and it can be self-aware. You could say mm -hmm. that to somebody in preschool, but the readiness isn't there to experience what it's pointing at. So the master knows, or the teacher has, has been trained to know through their own direct experience, is, the, is the, the vessel of the student ready to recognize what's so? And then it can be pointed out. So yeah. what I think we're talking about in varying ways sometimes meandering on my part is that there's a hybrid it doesn't have to be sudden the, the direct path of sudden realization only or just the gradual path it's a hybrid and there are these punctuated moments when we're ready to recognize something and we we can and we do yeah in the meantime we cultivate virtues we cultivate learning intellectually how the practice of breathing works like it's helpful to be instructed how the lungs work the things you've said about the diaphragm and carbon dioxide because there's a there's a trust there's a relaxation and then as we learn the mechanism kind of like learning to ride a bike you know a certain point we can take the training wheels off and then and then we don't have to concentrate so hard to ride the bike and then we can like stand on the seat and go down the street yes well for example in my own life i've always had a vague sense that a plant-based diet is an optimal diet for my own health, for animal welfare, and for the health of the planet. But it wasn't until I actually fully understood what is happening inside of my body on a biological level when I, con when I consume animal protein that I said, whoa, I am going plant-based. Hmm. And because I understood the mechanism, now, of course, this is unique to me and how my brain works, but because I understood the mechanism, what I understood putrefaction in my colon <laughs> and all these other things that just terrified me, I, it was way easier and made way more sense to then change my behavior. Mm -hmm. And there is this interesting dance 
between thoughts and behavior. Thoughts can lead to adopting certain kinds of behavior, but adopting certain kinds of behavior influence your thoughts. thoughts. <laughs> yeah, chicken or the egg, which came first? I don't know. And there are some people, just to be fair, yeah, who through study and looking at their blood work have been plant-based only for some period of time and it wasn't going well for them in their gut and then they switched some things. So it's a, that too is such a wide field of confusion. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not fundamentalist about a plant-based diet. Um, I think you know, people have to come to their own conclusions. But for me, uh, mostly my point was once I understood mechanism, it was easier to adopt the behavior. So. Well, and I was sure that it, the mechanism helped you have a feeling of commitment. The mechanism ultimately was the training wheel. Yeah. Taken off the bicycle once you had commitment. And yeah. once you had commitment, you didn't need to know the information anymore. You were just committed and observing your your body as you moved deeper into the plant-based diet. But the commitment was the thing. And the information of mechanism convinced you of the value. Right. Yeah. And the same could be true for meditation. Thousand percent, yes. Or breath work or just about anything really. Yeah. I mean, I start to look at fMRIs of your brain or not my brain or your brain, but of brains experiencing meditation or after meditation or the generation of gray matter in the brain for people who have been meditating for not even that long. Yeah. Um, and or the anti-inflammatory responses um, were that you can actually measure. Yep. Uh, with, you know, in your blood panels with C-reactive protein levels and all these kinds of things. And, you know, once you begin to, you know, connect these things, um, cer certain kinds of behaviors become, you know, clear. And, uh, of course, do we have the will to adopt them? That's, that's up to everybody. Yeah. And suffering helps a lot. Suffering helps us to grow. You know, you could use a different word, perturbation. Yeah. In nature and biology, like when there's a perturbation, like if a, if a tomato plant, a potted tomato plant is not producing tomatoes, you can, you can drop it from a height and it shocks it and you can, and it'll start to produce tomatoes. There's been a perturbation right. of some sort. Well, when, when we're suffering a breakup or whatever, when we can hand, when we can ingest the suffering in a skillful way with usually with a facilitator's help. It, there's enough of a reason to do things differently, to start to look at how I'm behaving differently. But, but, but until there's enough suffering, why should I give up that way of being? Yeah. Well, this is known as the hormetic response. So, I mean, there's myriad examples of it, but, you know, you build your biological immune system through some degree of low-grade exposure to bacteria and, and viruses. Mm -hmm. You build your psychological immune system through some exposure to insult and and Injury. And inj injury and, and tribulation. Um, and, you know, you can see that these low forms of physiological oxidative stress actually have really, really beneficial physiological um, benefits. But, you know, what's not good is anything chronic. Uh, so chronic stress, chronic oxidation, chronic inflammation, um, those can be obviously very deleterious. Anyways, this is a pleasure. Always. So much fun. We could do this for hours. We maybe maybe we need our own show. I think so. Yeah. I think so. We can cover a lot of topics. Yes, we can. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate you. Thank you, Jeff. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Scott Schwenk. You can take Scott's commune course, Ecstatic Breathwork, for free for five days by going to onecommune.com slash breathwork. And stay tuned for some new upcoming programs that Commune is releasing in the new year with Scott. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if so inclined, leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of this show, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are ads. So if you're really looking for a way to support our efforts here, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free with a Commune trial at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime for comments, criticisms, questions at jeffk at onecommune.com. And I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.